Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 107 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. I'm down here in the bunker. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here, as always, with my friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling tonight, Dave? I'm doing pretty well. Just friend, not some, you know, kind adjective. Good friend, special friend. You're going to have to just settle for friend tonight. All right, I'm, I'm settling. <laughs> I'm settling. I'm doing pretty well. We got ourselves out of that terrible polar vortex now. That's right, which impeded us. I think we were 0 for 2 trying to get down here. That's correct. Uh, to do this episode, but we're yes, back. Yeah. Terribly impeded. Uh, so there's been a lot of different names given to this snowstorm that has swamped the Midwest. Yes. Snowpocalypse. Uh, snowpocalypse. Snowmageddon. Snowmageddon. It was, I think the meteorological term was, it was a bomb cyclone. Bomb cyclone. Yeah. Like a shark tornado. Tornado full of sharks. Yeah, Sharknado. Correct. Yeah. How about uh, some classically themed one? You, you got like, some? Uh, yeah, Scylla and Snowribdis. Nice. I like that. <laughs> That's not too bad. No, I was caught between both of those. That's correct. Yeah, in a rock in a hard place. Yeah. And uh, what are the rocks that uh, crash together and smash? The Simplegades. Yes. Yeah. The Simplegades, the Plegades, the Snow Plegades. Can that? I like Smashed it. between those. I like it. Man, our our local uh, weather teams could have used a lot of these. They could. They were yeah. pretty dry. We're running out of steam here already, aren't we? <laughs> Some kind of a chimera, right? Like a snowmera. A snowmera. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. I like it. Yeah. I, you know, what's that creature that has kind of a horse body but bird features? Um, a, about a griffin? A hippogriff. A hipposniff. <laughs> Put a little snow in there? Yeah. Okay. My, my car outside on the curb today, Correct. I spent a good hour digging that thing out. It had been buried by the public. It could have been swallowed by a, 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 a sniffogriff. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm feeling well. Good. I'm feeling... Um, a little bit astute, I hope, and maybe hirsute. Yeah, definitely hirsute from my, my yes. vantage point over here. Yeah, what do you mean? I, I mean, the, the beard. You're... I was just fishing for a compliment yeah. there. It's, it looks very um, looks very 19th century. Does it really? Yeah. Like I could be some kind of a um, German Protestant theologian or something who walks three miles to school to teach a little bit of Latin and then walks home. and. Right, exactly. Or I would say like maybe President Benjamin Harrison. Really? Yeah, just kind of gets it. Not pork choppy yet. Not, but... No, no, but it's getting there. Well, it began with No Shave November. Okay, then. It just transitioned into December beard. December beard. <laughs> and now we're moving into January. <laughs> so it's going to keep on growing. Well, uh, we have February and mm. March stash. March stash. <laughs> so there's, there's no end in sight, Well, really. I, can't, I can't think of anything to do with April. April. It's so, just, but we got at least there. three, four months of uh, correct of hirsuteness. I hope so. But All this right. podcast is not about facial hair. No, it's not. Appearances to the contrary. Now, what are we talking about tonight? Uh, well, we're going to take Occam's razor. Yes. You okay. Like that? That's right. Yeah, that's the hair theme again. That's right. We're going to take Occam's razor to the Lucan census of Quirinius. Luke chapter two. The evangelist talks about. Uh, at the birth of Christ, there was a census taken by Quirinius, the governor of Syria, mm-hmm. during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And this is a troubling passage in some ways. Okay. So we're going to wade through a number of journal articles. We're going to do a little bit of historical research, a little bit of archaeology, literary archaeology, and see if we can find some resolution uh, to these troubling issues. All right. So we're, let's, are we going to we're going to save the issues for now? Oh, yes. Okay. We, we've got a shout out. Oh, we do. Yes. We do. Did you read the script, Winkle? Right, I'm looking at it right now. We have okay. uh, a shout out going out to uh, one Nathan Molker. That's correct. All right. And he writes, 
Hi, I love the podcast and figured I'd take up the repeated request for people to write in for shout outs. Thank you. Yes, Thank, finally. Yes. Thanks, Nathan. I love the podcast fresh take on the classical themes. I was homeschooled and took several years of Latin. I couldn't say I ever made it to erudite, however, and I have much to look forward to in terms of seeking to improve my Latin. He says, I am, on the, uh, I am an attorney on the staff of the Chief Justice of Alabama. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Okay, he's moving in the, in the corridors of power. That's correct. Yeah. Nice. He says, our profession- Sharpening pencils, <laughs> mimeographing things. Do people mimeograph these days? I don't know. I remember, remember the, the big crank. That's and that, correct. That, 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 that Terrible, smell. inky smell. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You felt like Gutenberg when you went up to one of those things. You, yeah, it wasn't that far distant from no, the Gutenberg no, it's technology. Com- it's completely sanitized. It Just is. a flash across your retina and 50 copies, exactly. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to Nathan. Yes, he, he continues. He says, our profession uses Latin constantly. Although most lawyers do not really understand it. I like the exclamation point that he put after that. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of frustration there. Yeah. yeah. He says, perhaps an episode on legal Latin could be interesting. It's not a bad idea That's at all. That's an excellent suggestion. I think, I've been thinking about this, though, and it may give us some difficulty because there's quite a, um, a gap between what you might take as the natural translation of the terms. Like yeah. Acer- Certiorari is one really, uh, oh, right, right. Uh, you know, mouth-breaking, jaw-busting phrase between what you might take as the natural translation of the phrase and what it has come to mean yeah. in the uh, legal parlance. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this idea. You do? I, I think it'd be All very right. it'd be interesting. We yeah. should pursue it. Maybe even get a lawyer or two on here and see what they think about it. Nice, nice. And he ends with uh, ends with some Latin here. Nice. Quid quid latine dictum sit altum videtur. All right, which we've used before on a particular episode. We have. Yep. So whatever is said in Latin just seems loftier. That's correct. Seems lofty. Yeah. yeah it sounds deep. I, um, not so long ago, I was walking through the student lounge at my mm-hmm. at my school, and there was a young lady there with a shirt that had this very phrase All on right. it. And I went up to her because you know it, I, being a classicist, exactly. And I said, Hey, I, I, lo- I love your shirt. Hey, where'd you get it? And she goes, She goes, Really? He says, I have no idea what it means. Says, My mom gave this to me, but that's, I have no idea what it says. Funny. <laughs> it says, don't wear articles of clothing with sayings you don't understand. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of there's kind of a um, there, there's kind of a, uh, a phase right now where students are wearing T-shirts of bands that they've never listened to. Oh, I didn't know that. And so, like, you know, to uh, see kids with, with a Nirvana shirt on. Right. And it has a certain cachet. Right. But they couldn't tell you anything about the band or the music. Because uh, these kids were born oh. nearly a decade after after the decease right, right. of uh, Kurt Cobain right but they have they have kind of the the logo and the name has a kind of pop culture caching mm, it's completely divorced from the art itself which much is, like latin but yeah, wow way to bring that back around thanks right all right so let's, let's get into this okay. all right so you said there are some issues here with the Luke, the Lucan's uh, census of Quirinius and this correct this, um, famous passage one of the most famous passages in all of scripture uh, Luke chapter 2 correct right So we're going to start out by reading the Greek of the first four verses of Luke chapter 2, then go on to a translation and lay out the problem that we have here. All right. You want want to tackle that Greek for us, Dave? Yes, I'd love to do that. So this is Koine Greek. Here we go. Agenata de entais hemeres ekenais exelthen dogma para kaisaros augustu apographestai pasante oikumenein. How te apagrafe proteagenata hege manewantos tes surias cure nitu. Kai eporevanta pantes apographestai, hercastas eisten heo tu polen, anebe de kai Yosef, apartes Galileas, ek poleos Nazaret, eisten judaian, eis polen David, hetis kaletai be tleem, diata enai atan, ex oiku kai patrias David, apographestai sun mariam, 
te emnestelmene auto use enquo. Nicely done. Thank Since you. We don't. We do. Um, we do. We've done so much Latin lately. Yes, it's correct. Nice to hear some Greek on the. Pod. Yeah, that's. I was. I was very much drawn to this topic for that reason. Yeah, and the translation of this. This is from the um, the New International Version. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while, Quirin, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And also I read verse 5. Oh, you did? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't say that. It goes on, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him while, and was expecting a child. That's correct. Use en cuo, right? While she was pregnant. So it's a beautiful, uh, good way to begin this particular part of Christ's nativity story. Mm-hmm. But for a very long time now, more than a century, scholars have had a great deal of trouble figuring out some of the facts of the census that's mentioned in verse 1. Right? The word here for uh, census or decree is dogma, right? A, a dogma, exalthen, went out from Caesar Augustus to enroll the entire world, pasantein oikumene. Mm-hmm. So we've got four separate issues here which arise from the passage, and they have thus far proved largely insoluble to scholars of this particular text. Okay, now that's, that's you said a lot there, and that right. needs a lot of unpacking. Correct. So what exactly are the issues? Right. What's the problem? Here? Right. So I'm going to rely here on the Expositor's Greek Testament. So this is quite an old work, 1897. It's not current scholarship. We're going to look at some more current scholarship in this episode, but I think this nicely lays out the issue. And this is uh, published by W. w. Robertson Nickel. He's the editor. And um, of this particular volume, the scholar is a man named Alexander Balmain Bruce. Okay. Uh, he covers the Synoptic Gospels. So this would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, so originally written in 1897, this is from a reprint. First problem, problem number one. Apart from the Gospel, history knows nothing of a general imperial census in the time of Augustus. Okay. So that's the first issue. Second issue, there could have been no Roman census in Palestine during the time of Herod the Great, Arax Socius, that is an allied king, right? Okay. So the idea here being uh, Luke is wrong, you know, on two counts. It is only Luke who mentions a general imperial census in the time of Augustus. So if it's only mentioned by one individual, that brings a lot of, um, you know, implausibility to its reliability. It can't be really reliable if Luke is the only person who mentions gotcha, yes. the general imperial census. Now, we're going to unpack each of these claims, relying on a number of different articles, okay. and take a look at each of them. The second one, there could have been no Roman census in Palestine during the time of Herod the Great, because he was a rakes socius. He was an allied king. So, the, so a Roman census wouldn't have covered that territory? Correct. Because, okay, all right. So he was under Roman authority since the time that Pompey the Great the rival of Julius Caesar, took over Judea in the 60s -hmm. BC, but as an allied king, not a subject, he had a certain level of independence. Gotcha. gotcha. Yes, he was a puppet king, but they wouldn't have taken a Roman census in his territory. That's the claim. Okay. That's the claim. Okay. Third claim, and this is probably the most difficult one, the third one. Such a census at such a time could not have been carried out by Quirinius, for he was not a governor in Syria then, nor till 10 years later when he did make a census, which gave rise to a revolt under Judas of Galilee. Okay. And that is, that is uh, um, something that is historically secure. That's correct. Okay. So here, here is the problem with the chronology. 
every uh, source that we have, every secular source, every non-Lucan source, says that Quirinius was not the governor until 6 or 7 AD. Okay. And the birth of Christ, according to the Gospel of Matthew, took place during the reign of Herod the Great, who died in 4 BC. Okay. So if that's when Christ was born, prior to 4 BC, maybe 5 or 6, from everything we know, Quirinius was not the governor then. Okay. Therefore, the census could not have taken place under him, and Luke turns out to be grossly inaccurate All right. in okay. his claim of the census. Okay. That's the third problem. The fourth problem, under a Roman census, it would not have been necessary for Joseph to go to Bethlehem or for Mary to accompany him. Okay. And we know this from, from details of other Roman census that... Well, that's the claim, but as, as we dig down into this a little deeper, we're going to find that each of these claims doesn't really stand up to the most careful scrutiny. There are still some problems with the third one about Quirinius. I don't think they are uh, insoluble problems. Okay, okay. Um, but, you know, the other three, they don't really stand up to careful scrutiny. Okay. Uh, so how are we going to go about this, Dave? Well, I think we should start by talking about Luke as a historian generally mm -hmm. and laying out a few of the issues there. Then look at the person of Quirinius from the other sources that we have, uh, Josephus and Tacitus in particular. And then we'll make our way through the different articles uh, that we've been doing our research on to kind of lay out the problem and see if we can respond to these four issues that have been raised. Sounds great. Okay, so let's, uh, let's take a look at Luke as a historian. Right. So um, in Luke's preface to his gospel, uh, it's often been observed that he is quite Thucydidean in nature. So he's not a mere storyteller. He makes some pretty bold claims about the reliability of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. He's acting like a, um, a historian more than, you know, a simple storyteller. At least that's how he sees himself. Okay. So in Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> translating here from the, uh, the ESV, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative..." of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, that's autoptai, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So orderly account, uh, it says he followed them closely, akribos, or precisely, uh, to give you an orderly account, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, all right. So he's taking things, is, is um, you know, these sources that he's, that he's referring to or these, um, you know, the word that has been delivered to this, is this that mysterious kind of quasi-document Q that you often hear about? Well, that's one theory. Okay. That, that's one hypothesis. And uh, I'm making my way through some, uh, a particular argument on this right now. It's, I don't remember the name of the book, actually, but it's examining the relationship between the three synoptic gospels. Yeah. And as you know, the two most important um, literary, I don't know, problems, you might say, in all of Western lit is, first, who is Homer, right? How did, that, how did those two epics get written? Mm -hmm. And secondly, what's the relationship between the different synoptists? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one theory is that, yes, there was a Q document from which both Matthew and Luke uh, drew, and then they may have compared it partly with Mark. Um, there are many other theories as to who are Luke's sources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the point really from this that, that I'm looking at is how Luke takes himself to be really precise as an historian. Mm -hmm. And that's going to prove important later when we look at the evidence for the census. Okay, okay. Now, this figure of Theophilus that right. Luke mentions here, that he's that he's addressing here, right. uh, who, he's, who he's writing this account for, right. Um, 
I, I believe it's uh, Dr. Paul Meyer, correct, from, from Western uh, Michigan, just down the road from us. Yes, down in Kalamazoo, right? Who's who's written a lot of uh, a lot of stuff about kind of the first century, right? And, That's right. And um, um, both and, popular and um, scholarly works. Yes, right. So his he, his claim is that this Theophilus is a is a kind of code name, correct? Right for one Titus Flavius Sabinus. Yes, or at least it's a. I don't know if he's so much claiming it as he's just kind of speculating. That this is the individual that fits the mysterious God lover who's mentioned in Luke chapter one. Okay. Because the name Theophilus uh, means, you know, you who are a respecter of the divine. Right. Without any real identification. And notice he's given also this adjective, kratista, this uh, vocative, this superlative, most powerful, which is translated, Mm. you know, most excellent. But it's a title that you don't use for, you know, just any individual. It's not like saying, sir, it's an elevated title. Yeah, yeah. Now, is, is Meyer making the claim that um, uh, that Luke is using Theophilus for this guy being to protect him? Perhaps. Okay. And uh, there's an old, old tradition that uh, Titus Flavius Sabinus, right, who was the elder son of Titus Flavius Sabinus and the brother of the emperor Vespasian, hmm. that he was married to a woman uh, who converted to Christianity, one of the few um, high society Roman women aristocrats who converted to Christianity. And so the story is that Luke wrote his gospel addressed to this person, right, the, the husband of uh, the woman he knew was a Christian, in part to win favor for the Christian cause with someone who is in a very high place, right, hmm. right next to the emperor. I see. Although maybe not at that time, because Vespasian was not the emperor until 69, and uh, the gospel of Luke may have been written quite a bit earlier. Yeah. Still, Titus Flavius Sabinus was a well-known Roman a politician at the time, right? Now it, ra- it raises questions in my in my mind. Maybe in the audience too is that okay? He's addressing this. He's writing this account for Theophilus, right? That Lu- Luke's intention um, was his intention for this this gospel to be copied and read and circulated, or was his intention was his intention was just to simply convince or, or provide it for this Theophilus? And the fact that it becomes one of the Four canonical gospels is almost like an accident of history. Right. I think it's the. I think it's um, false dichotomy. Okay. I think he intends it primarily for Titus Flavius, for Theophilus, whoever that is. Yeah. If it's Titus Flavius Sabinus, um, but he intends it also to be read by Christians around the Mediterranean and the many Greek cities uh, to which it was sent. Okay. In the same way that you know, when you write a you know a, a poem or something like that. You may dedicate it to some noble, but you intend it for public consumption. Okay. All right. All right. A yes. very, very standard trope, right, in, yes. uh, in Greco-Roman literature. Yes. So the idea, though, is that Luke, as an historian, uh, is actually quite reliable because his claims are falsifiable. Okay. Specifically here in Luke chapter 2, and this is going to be important. Why would he go out of his way to date and locate the... Uh, birth of Christ. Why would he say it happened when Quirinius was the governor of of, uh, Syria, that a dogma went out, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to enroll the whole world? Why would he bother with all of that, specifically since it's so easily proven false if he's just making it up. Right. He loses all credibility immediately. Right, exactly. And this is this is a these are details that are not mentioned in the other three gospels at all, right? That's correct. Okay. Yep. Uh, the gospels of Mark and John contain no infancy narrative mm-hmm. whatsoever. And the Gospel of Matthew is told largely from um, Joseph's perspective, the early chapters, and there's no mention of a census. And there's a lot of quotation of Old Testament prophecy and there's none here. Um, in Luke's account. So hmm. 
at least in this particular part. In other words, as many scholars have observed, there's no reason for uh, Luke to create a story to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem because he's not using that as proof of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes Whereas sense. Matthew gets them into Bethlehem, uh, specifically in part to show that it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but Matthew does not mention the census. Right. Matthew begins with the genealogy to, right. Right, right, to, to trace um, Christ's um, connection to the house of David. Correct. Yeah. So, Jeff, one of the first articles that's going to help us navigate this issue is uh, by Mark Smith. Yes. Right. And you're going to read um, a little bit of that for us. Yeah. So this comes from an article uh, entitled Of Jesus in Quirinius uh, from the Catholic Biblical Quarterly back in from April 2000, in which um, Smith writes, The evidence provided by Luke is quite strong by historical standards because, because it is falsifiable. If Luke talked to any Palestinian Jews in preparation for his writing, or if he consulted any traditions passed down by them, as he implies in his prologue, it is most probable that he would have been advised of his chronological blunder. In addition, had he included such a chronological non sequitur, his narrative would have lost the Thucydidean scrupulous tone which he sets up so carefully in the prologue. Instead, before completing his second chapter, he would have revealed that he was not a careful researcher at all, and his audience would have little reason to take seriously the historical references in the remainder of his narrative. The fact that Luke's account of Quirinius and his census is falsifiable as historical evidence and is so easy for him to verify and correct makes it makes it most improbable that he made the error of which he is often accused. Right. Okay. So what do you think of that argument? I think it makes a lot of sense to me. Right. I, my sense, you know, um, you know, growing up and from what I've learned is that uh, you know, Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and in the, the book of Acts, um, that he's a very good historian, mm-hmm. that there are many things in both of those books that um, have been corroborated by archaeological and other literary evidence. Right. And so it would just seem on the, uh, you know, from that, that, um, this would, that this would be a very odd error for him to make. Right, right. Well, later on the next page, actually, Smith uh, supports the contention that you expressed just there about how careful Luke is as an historian. So answering the question, did Luke just make up the census of Quirinius as an excuse to get them to to Bethlehem? Uh, Smith says, this is page 284, um, he says he could have sent the family to Bethlehem for any reason, or he could have begun his narrative in Bethlehem as had Matthew, and he would not have damaged his theological point at all. So the theological point in question is some people say, that Luke was concerned to show that Jesus was not a revolutionary. Mm. He was not intending to overthrow the Roman government. And there are many instances in the Gospel of Luke where Christ is shown to be a law-abiding um, subject of the Roman Empire. Mm. Now, you know, if, if you take it that it's an accurate account, well, then Luke does so because that's how Jesus actually behaved. But if you think that, you know, he's crafting a story to give an impression that may be false... Well, then you would say he did all of that to create the impression, and he added in the census of Quirinius to show that, see, even Jesus' extended family were good Roman subjects. Mm, mm-hmm. So Smith goes on and he says, why would he make up a story with confused chronology, one which could easily be checked and falsified by his audience when it offers him little advantage? In addition, Luke appears to have been remarkably well-informed about the geographical distribution and governmental structures and officials of the Roman provinces. Now, this is really interesting, Jeff. I didn't know this before. It's uh, because I haven't been reading closely, I guess. For example, despite the rapid changes that took place in the government of Cyprus, Luke correctly identifies Sergius Paulus as proconsul. Hmm. 
Hmm. This is in uh, Acts. He rightly notes that Philippi was a Roman colony governed by strategoi, the appropriate Greek equivalent of duoviri eurydicundo. Epigraphic evidence has verified Luke's use of the unusual term polytarchs to describe the leaders of Thessalonica. The ruler of Malta is correctly styled Prototes Meridos. Both Asiarchs and a proconsul appear in Luke's narrative of Paul in Ephesus, and these are all titles that are confirmed in Roman sources. So Luke knows his stuff. He does. Yeah. Yeah, he is extraordinarily careful about chronology and terminology where uh, he wouldn't necessarily have to be. Right. And in fact, Smith says on the next page, the point is that Luke could have used a general term like leaders in each of those cases when he's documenting Sergius Paulus on Cyprus and, you know, who's in charge of the island of Malta and uh, saved himself considerable effort. He did his homework, says Smith, and most importantly, in the cases where we can test him, he consistently got the details of chronology and terminology correct. Yeah. So this raises the obvious question. Why would he make it up in the case of Quirinius when it's like a, it's a large world event, he claims. Right. So easily falsifiable. Right. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. And especially um, a piece of chronology, a, a very important piece of chronology, right. which is, you know, about kind of the main the main character in the gospel. Yes. Right? This isn't just a, kind of a throwaway reference to, uh, you know, a, a ruler on Malta. Right. As impressive as it is that he gets that right, um, it would be uh, extraordinarily sloppy for him to get that detail wrong. Exactly so, exactly so. So Smith sums it up this way. He says, the second view, that is that Luke made it up, though not impossible, is not much more probable than the first theory that he's just mistaken. As historians view probability, both of the common explanations of Luke's reference to Quirinius are less than convincing. Is there no other alternative? Smith asks. So all of this is occasioned, you understand, by the conflict, the apparent conflict between what happens in Matthew that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. Yes. And when Luke says that uh, the, the census took place while Quirinius was governor, there's a deep chronological conflict, apparently. Right. So with the, uh, just to reiterate, the, right. it's kind of a, it's uh, more or less kind of a 10-year gap, right? That's right. So Herod, Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. Yep. And then uh, Quirinius, we know that he was governor of Syria in uh, 680. Yes. Okay. So 10 years later, right? And the traditional date... For Herod's death was not established until 1896. Hmm. So there was some there were some mistakes in the Gregorian calendar. You know the well-known mistakes. Yes. And it was um, a Protestant theologian, a German named uh, Schurer, who uh, died in 1910, who really firmly established the death of Herod the Great as four. BC. Do you know the details of that? I'm just curious. How like, he came, how he nailed that down? I, I don't okay. know. It All was right. um, it was by examining the you know the calendular the calendular errors ah. of a previous calculation. Gotcha. gotcha. Right. Not an easy word to say. It sounds too much Cal- like... Calendular? It's an adjective based on the word calends, yeah. like calendar. It sounds too much like glandular. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, that sounds like <laughs> some kind of gland. Yes, yeah. not a glandular error, a calendular, <laughs> calendular error. Calendular error. Right. Now, before we get too much deeper, I just have a couple of questions, right. and I'm just curious. Um, now, I may not have the answers. I know, I know that, okay. but... Um, so uh, the traditions about who Luke was, right? right? Um, and he's a doctor. Yeah, he's right? mentioned as a dear physician in one of Paul's letters. Okay. I don't remember which one. But we do. Do we know much about him? His background, like where he comes from? How does he get involved in all of this? Well, he seems to have been a Hellen, um, Hellenistic Jew. Okay. Right. So he was. He had at least one Jewish parent. 
um, but he was raised as a Greek. Um, he probably read the classics to some extent. He had a better education than most of the New Testament writers. Mm -hmm. The quality of his Greek is uh, significantly better than, say, Mark's. It has more aspiration to style. Okay. Um, it's not as complicated as the, the Greek of whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, traditionally Paul, but now generally thought to be someone like Paulos, an Alexandrian Jew. Uh, but Luke's Greek is pretty good on the whole. Okay. And uh, one of the traditions, which I think is, is quite likely is that while Paul was uh, imprisoned in Caesarea, Philippi, um, in perhaps 52 to 54 AD during that period, yeah. that because Luke was his companion, uh, Luke may have spent that time traveling through Palestine, interviewing as many eyewitnesses or oh. some of the eyewitnesses uh, that he could have had access to, specifically Mary, uh, Christ's mother. Yeah. So I find that quite plausible um, because first I believe it's you know inspired and accurate, and so, how do we explain um, some of the details that Luke has about Mary's thoughts and the the journey to um, the journey to Jerusalem? And Christ was a you know a twelve year old or thirteen year old mm -hmm. boy. Mm -hmm. How do we know those kinds of things? As well as the story of Elizabeth and Zacharias and the birth of John the Baptist. Right. How did he learn these things? Well, yes. You know, there are a couple op there are a couple options, right? If you believe that it's all legend, well, Luke just made it up as a good storyteller yep. or some kind of storyteller. Yeah. Um, if you believe that it is true, you know, you could believe that um, it was divinely told to him in a, you know, dictation kind of method where the Holy Spirit just said, this is what happened, write it down. Mm -hmm. I don't accept that idea on the whole because it's much more natural that he, you know, he did what he said he did. He went and talked to people and studied and eyewitnesses and... right you know, came up with an account. Right, like you said, very Thucydidean. And Correct. And given his background, it's it's not beyond the... Um, well, it seems very likely that he probably would have known and read Thucydides himself. Correct. So, I mean, Thucydides sets the standard for, for history writing. He says that... Absolutely. If, if, I, if I didn't witness it myself, I talked to people who did. That's right. And that's going to be my standard. Yep. And Herodotus, too, we should give him a little bit of credit. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of dismissed as more of a folklore kind of fellow, but... He tried. He tried, but he's a little bit more over the all over the map. That's right. Two other quick facts about uh, Luke. Um, you asked previously, you know, was he a physician? Uh, it's I looked it up. It's in uh, Colossians okay. chapter four, where okay. he's mentioned as a physician. And very interestingly, for the first time, um, Luke in Acts chapter sixteen, Luke inserts himself into the narrative. Uh, in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, he says, when Paul had seen the vision, the vision of the man from Macedonia, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Hmm. So prior to that, we are given a, a third person view of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all of their travels. This is the first time where Luke tells us just by putting the verb in the first plural, that he has been with them at least part of the time. Interesting. Excellent. Oh, that, yeah, that goes um, well beyond uh, what I was expecting in the oh, answer to my okay. question. Right? <laughs> uh, man, my second question was yes. um, the, the dating of Luke's gospel. Is, yes. Uh, is, uh, do we have brackets for that? Well, we can't get into this too deeply okay. All right. um, because it's so controversial, at least among those who do not accept it as canon, as I do, you know, as, as we do, as inspired. Mm-hmm. But it could have been as late as the 70s, I suppose. Okay. Um, I tend to think it's much, much earlier because at the end of Acts, chapter 28, 
Um, Luke tells us that Paul was just there in Rome under house arrest, uh, preaching the gospel freely. Mm-hmm. So we know that that's probably 63 to 65. Right. It really can't be much later than that, because I think it's it's likely that Paul was beheaded during the Neronian persecutions. Yeah, I, I agree. We've been to St. Paul's uh, Basilica outside the walls. Right. Um, we can't prove it, but I see no reason to disbelieve it. Right. Um, and so if, if that is around 65... And if the Gospel of Luke was written before the Acts of the Apostles, which is very clear, at least from the beginning of Acts, where he says, in my former book, Theophilus, exactly, uh, then that has to push the Gospel of Luke back to um, late 50s, yeah, at least a draft, perhaps. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's the view I hold. So, um, I mean, certainly close enough to someone like Quirinius himself that if he had made this... Uh, this chronological error, he couldn't have gotten away with it just because, oh, it was so long ago and people have forgotten about this. Correct. So it, it was close enough that that would have been an obvious error for um, many, many people who yes. were reading this thing. Yes. It's interesting that you mentioned that because in the Smith article we just referenced, um, he talks about the fact that it, uh, confusing the two different censuses, we haven't talked about the other census. Okay. But Luke in Acts chapter 5, uh, in a speech of Gamaliel, when Peter and John are on trial before the Sanhedrin, mm-hmm. Gamaliel mentions um, a revolt under someone named Judas the Galilean that took place at the time of the census. Um, and so we know that that was um, under Quirinius, and that was in 6 or 7 AD. Yes. So that's the one uh, census that we can very um, specifically date. Okay. Right? So Luke mentions that one, and so why would he mention a first one um, if he is just making it up completely. Right, right. And he uses the the, the adjective prote. That's right? correct. So he, it's a first census. Right. So we're okay. going to talk about that okay. at length later on, okay. because I think that there is a better way to translate it um, uh, based on the article of Thorley and the other individual that I was studying, uh, Thorley and Pearson. Okay. Um, and so there's a better way to translate it than it is generally taken, which actually resolves a lot of these problems. Interesting, interesting. Should we um, uh, drag uh, Josephus into this? Yes, because we need to know who is Quirinius. Yes. And we have two excellent sources, um, literary sources for Quirinius. The first is Josephus, um, his Jewish antiquities. um, And the second is the Roman historian Tacitus. And then we may have inscriptional evidence as well for Quirinius. So, Jeff, I'd like to start by reading a little bit of the Greek of Josephus, mm-hmm. since, you know, this episode is kind of Greek-themed. Yes. And then maybe you can read some of the translation. Yes. All right. So this is from the Antiquities of Josephus, uh, book 18, and it goes like this. Curenios, there's Quirinius, Curenios de tonestein bulein synagomenon aner, taste alas arcas epitetelekos kai dia pason hot delsas hupatas genestai. Tata ala axiomati megas sun aligois episurias parain, hupa kaisaros, decayadates tu ethnus, apostalmenos kai timetes ton usion genesomenos. Very nicely done. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and Josephus, his dates, when is he writing? He's a contemporary of Titus and was in the entourage of Titus. That's right. You know, the famous general who got an arch when he destroyed Jerusalem in 70. 
Gotcha. So I think that um, Josephus was um, perhaps born in the 40s. Okay. M- maybe the late 20s, I'm not sure, A.D., uh, and died uh, at the beginning of the second century. So very close, if not contemporaneous, with Luke himself. Absolutely okay. contemporaneous. Yep. So this uh, Serenius, as it's as it's uh, in the translation I have here, that's that's the same as Quirinius. That's correct. Okay. All right. So now Serenius, a Roman senator and one who had gone through other ma- magistrates, had passed through them until he had been consul, and one who, on other accounts, was of great dignity, came at this time into Syria, with a few others being sent by Caesar, to he a ju- to be a judge of that nation and to take an account of their substance. Caponius, also a man of the equestrian order, was sent together with him to have the supreme power over the Jews. Moreover, Serenius came himself into Judea, which was now added to the province of Syria, to take an account of their substance and to dispose of Archelaus's money. But the Jews, although at the beginning they took the report of a taxation heinously, yet did they leave off any farther opposition to it by the persuasion of Joazar, who was the son of Boethus and high priest. So they, being overpersuaded by jo- Joazar's words, gave an account of their estates without any dispute about it. Yet there was one Judas, a Gaulanite, uh, of a city whose name was Gamala, who, taking with him Saduk, a Pharisee, became zealous to draw them to a revolt, who both said that this taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery and exhorted the nature- nation to assert their liberty. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So that is, then, the later census the one of six or seven, uh, which we have from Josephus for sure, okay. was conducted under two men, Quirinius and Caponius, mm-hmm. who were uh, governing Syria together at the time. Okay. I love this translation. Did you see uh, the, the source there? Uh, it's a, a one William Whiston. Yes. Yeah. Sometime professor of mathematics in the University of Cambridge, London, 1737. Going back to the 18th century. Yes. Okay. But what's so charming to me about this is that, you know, this guy, Whiston, uh, he was a professor of mathematics at Cambridge, and yet he translated all of Josephus from, you know, Greek into English. Wow. So When, when men were men. I guess so. Man. He could do a number of different things. That's amazing. So this is the um, this is the census that's referred to in Acts chapter 5, as I was just mentioning, from Gamaliel. Right. And uh, so what we see, right, is that, um, they at the beginning uh, they were upset of tax about the notion of taxation, yet they left off any farther opposition to it. And then there was this revolt of Judas the Galenite, mm-hmm. or Judas the Galilean, as it's translated in Acts five. So we have all of the elements here of corroboration of Luke's account, right? From a a source that's not Christian in any sense, or even sympathetic to Christianity, right? Uh, Josephus, right? yes, he places Quirinius in Syria. He um, he confirms Acts 5, and Quirinius is conducting a census for the purposes of taxation. Right. The problem, of course, then is... It's the time problem. It's the time problem. Yes. Unless Luke 2 is translated in a little different way. Which as, we're going to get to? That's correct. Okay, gotcha. Which we're going to get to... After the break? There you go. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by the good people at Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, they've been with us not as long as Hackett has been, but no. they, they have been a, uh, a great supporter of the podcast for quite some time now. Quite a long time. Right. And their excellent support is as excellent as the coffee that their great machines brew. Wow, that wasn't easy to say, Jeff. It wasn't. You I, must be fully caffeinated. Something like that, right? Did you have a cup of uh, coffee from your ratio this morning? Of course, man. And, and you know, so there's something about having all that snow on the ground. Yes. It's icy and, and windy and cold outside, but you have this 
this, yeah. this 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 gentle machine brewing this great cup of coffee. You can stare out at the blizzard on the other side of the window with impunity. With impunity. Yeah, you feel like a champion, it's don't a, you? It's a beautiful thing. So right. yes, of course I made of course. coffee for myself and my wife this right. morning. Um, just the elegant way that that uh, the hand blown uh, glass carafe pours that stuff is right. just it's a it's a thing of beauty. It is. I got a nice Christmas present from one of my children. Yes, a little bag of uh, you know premium. Premium roasted coffee beans, a mm. company called Intelligentsia. Nice. You know, you've heard of them probably, Chicago Brewers. Um, no connection to this podcast. Probably, we're, you know, we're going to get slapped with a lawsuit <laughs> or something. But anyway. Yeah. Tasted fantastic when brewed in my ratio eight. Ratio eight. We've both we're both using the ratio eight right That's now. Correct. Yes. Uh, not that long ago, I had the ratio six going, mm-hmm. which is another wonderful machine. Uh, what the thing I loved about my six, it had the the weighty carafe that yeah. that kept the the coffee hot for right. for hours without any kind of roasting pad. I got the yeah. carafe for the eight. Do you? You're well, still using the hand blown borosilicate glass. I am. I am like a Neanderthal. No, I'm kidding. No, that a, thing is a work of art itself. Exactly. It belongs in the Louvre. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, listeners, if you want one of these wonderful machines, the Ratio 6 or the Ratio 8, uh, please go to RatioCoffee.com. R-A-T-I-O Coffee.com and choose the machine, uh, the one the one that you want or both. Right. Um, and type in the coupon code A-N-C-O-K-5. A-N-C-O-K-5. K for kitchen. Yes. Kitchen 5. What's, what's the 5 for? Just, I don't know. It's um, the number right before the 6 on, or the 8? That's true. No, yes. on a scale of 1 to 5... It's a five. It's a five. There we go. And you could be brewing in 2023 in the new year. It's time to, you know, go into the new year with some fresh brew, I would say. I would say so. Step it up. Step up your your brew game. That's correct. This is a chance to support this humble podcast and score some delicious coffee. Right. So you type in that coupon code and you will get 15% off your entire order. You will not regret it. Jeff and dear listener, this episode is also brought to you by the great folks at Hackett Publishing. Hackett, with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana, have been providing first-rate translations of the classics and many other areas of literature to a broad audience for 50 years. 50 years. This is the anniversary year. We're still in it. We're just barely in it. We're barely in it, just for a few more days. Yes. No, I I agree. Um, We've talked so much on the podcast how much we love the the translations from Hackett. Uh, We use them all the time on the podcast. Right. If you've been tuning into the the Virgil episodes, we've been been leaning on uh, Stanley Lombardo's wonderful translation of the Aeneid. But you can also pick up the verse translation by Len Krizak. Exactly. And they're both published by Hackett. That's correct. How many publishers do that? Not many. Not many. And they do the same for Ovid, right? They have both the Ambrose mm-hmm. and the Lombardo translation of the Metamorphoses. They have translations of the Iliad, the Odyssey, more than one different author in the Plato series, a brand new series on Aristotle. Um, I'm sure that they have Thucydides. We know they do. Mm-hmm. Herodotus. Pretty much everyone we've mentioned in this show for 107 episodes has been covered by Hackett. Right. And as you alluded to earlier, it's, they don't just do translations. They do publications of all kinds of scholarly work on um, all corners of the academic world. Uh, listeners, go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Just scroll through their huge, tremendous, wonderful catalog. It's just great viewing. Uh, find the books that you want um, and then type in this code, uh, A-N-2022. That's correct. That's ad nauseum. 
2022, the current year. And that will get you uh, two wonderful things, 20% off your entire order and free shipping. That's correct. See if you can find a cover of one of the classical works that you love as much as Jeff loves. Yes. The cover of Euripides' Bacchae. That's great. With Elvis Presley or the Iliad with the D-Day landing. Mm-hmm. And what is the Odyssey? The Odyssey is the famous uh, Earthrise, the shot of yes, the Earth from the moon. that's correct. And uh, the Aeneid is... The, the Vietnam Memorial. Yes. Yeah. It's brilliant. It is really right. brilliant. Yeah, just Nicely s- done. Scroll through. See what you can find there. Yeah. And find the one you love and let us know. You will not regret it. This episode is also brought to you by the wonderful music of a Mr. Jeff Sheets. That was, that's the guy at the top of the that's show? That's correct. With the angels we have heard on high, the Christmas themed ripping guitar yeah. and, uh, the you know the well timed rhythmic drums and and bass coming in and so forth that's Jeff Sheets. I also I love the harmonizing guitar lines. Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. Yeah, and we're gonna conclude with some of that too for our outro music. You know, keeping up kind of the tradition of going a little bit different around the holidays. Right. Uh, so Jeff is a, a world class guitarist, and uh, jeffsheets.com, S C H E E T Z. And a very generous musician, you know, uh, giving us this music for free to use on the podcast. Lives out there in uh, Kansas, somewhere like that. Just a kind of a, uh, a really incredible guy. Fantastic. A fly fisher. He trains uh, jumping dogs. Does and, he really? Yeah, he does. He does and it all. He does it and plays the guitar like uh, unbelievable. That's fantastic. Thank you, Jeff. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now, we move on from Josephus and his evidence for the character and history of Quirinius to a Roman historian. To Tacitus. That's correct. Who also mentions this guy. That's correct. Writing in Latin. All right. You want to read a little bit of Latin? I would. It's been mostly a Greek theme, and I'm not going to read all of this Tacitus, but just a little bit. And uh, those who are listening carefully, which I'm sure is everyone, they will notice that Tacitus is a master of Latin style. And quite different than almost anything we've read on the podcast before. Fantastic. Let's hear All it. All right. Sub idem tempus ut mors sopicii quirini publicis exequiis frequentaretur petivit a senatu. Nihil adwerem et patriciam sopiciorum familiam quirinius pertinuit, ortus apud municipium lanuium, sed impiger militii et acribus ministeriis consulatum subdivo augusto, there's the guy. Mm-hmm. Mox expugnatis per caliciam homonadensium, castellis insignia, triumphi adeptus, datusque rector Gaio Caesari Armeniam obtinenti. Very nice. Thanks. Seemed like a good place to stop there, right before we got to Tiberius. Okay. All right. So now, where is this from? I'm sorry. This before is, you read the translation. This is, um, yeah, this is from uh, Tacitus uh, Annales, uh, book three, chapter 48. Oh, that's right. Okay. And, this, and I'm going to give you uh, Alfred John Church's translation. About the same time, he requested the Senate to let the death of Sulpicius Quirinius be celebrated with a public funeral. With the old patrician family of the Sulpicii, this Quirinius, who was born in the town of Lanuvium, was quite unconnected. An indefatigable soldier, he had by his zealous services won the consulship under the divine Augustus and subsequently the honors of a triumph for having stormed some fortresses of the Homonadenses in Cilicia. He was also appointed advisor to Gaius Caesar in the government of Armenia and had likewise paid court to Tiberius, who was then at Rhodes. The emperor now made all this known to the Senate and extolled the good offices of Quirinius to himself, while he censured Marcus Lollius, whom he charged with encouraging Gaius Caesar in his perverse and quarrelsome behavior. But people generally had no pleasure in the memory of Quirinius because of the perils he had brought, as I have related on Lepida and the meanness and dangerous power of his last years. 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so he kind of fell out of favor as he yes. went on. Okay. Lepida was his wife. Ah. And apparently he was a, a brute to her. And uh, so near the end of his life, although he, you know, had this distinguished military career previously, yeah. like you said, fell out of favor. Hmm. So what do we gain from this? Well, we uh, know that um, Quirinius, right, Sulpicius, Gaius Sulpicius Quirinius, was an historical character, right? Mm-hmm. So Luke is obviously right about that. And that he was in the region. Uh, he was there fighting against the Homonadenses in uh, Cilicia. So this is... He got a triumph for this. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So not an inconspicuous individual. No. Right? You want to explain to the audience for a minute what a triumph is, because that might be somewhat unfamiliar. So, if a if a, a general or a military leader um, uh, won a a victory of of some um, of distinction, right, uh, the Senate could vote uh, that they could hold a triumph, which was kind of a a public parade, yes, uh, in in Rome, where you could um, you know be celebrated in a chariot and display the uh, all the um, the spoils of war, right. It was kind of the the highest mark of honor that a military leader could have. Yes, and you'd parade through the streets of the city of Rome, right? Yeah. When people would hang from the balconies, and it's like a ticker tape parade. Exactly. Kind of. So this guy Quirinius, um, this is what he did. He was a favorite of Augustus for a while, and uh, spent some time there. So that, that places him in the region. Now, there's a lot more depth here we could get into for establishing the dates he was there, uh, having to do with the roads that were built through the region of Asia Minor and some of the road markers that help us date uh, Quirinius. But again, we keep coming back to this problem, Mm -hmm. which is he wasn't in Syria at the right time, according to most evidence we have, to have conducted this census before the death of Herod the Great. Right. Okay. But there there is some evidence that might explain this problem. Yes. So we're next going to look at, as the plot thickens, inscriptional evidence, which comes from 1764. Okay. And the key word here is iterum. Iterum. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Which means? Uh, Again. I said iterum. Iterum. Which means? Again. Iterum, Jeff. Yes. Okay. How long are we going to do this? I don't know. This is Abbott Costello. (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with that? (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. They like a good snowstorm. Yes. So it all, it all turns, it hinges on whether or not this word iterum in the inscription mm-hmm. refers to Quirinius. Okay. So to explain this, we need to go to a more recent article by a scholar named Edward Dobrova. Okay. All right. So what does this Dobrova say about this inscription, this iterum? Okay. So the title of the work, the title of the article is The Date of the Census of Quirinius and the Chronology of the Governors of the Province of Syria. Okay. And it's from a, it's from a German journal. So here goes. My apologies to all of you who know German really well. It's from the Zeitschrift für Papyrologie und Epigraphik. Okay. Yeah. 2011. I always just I always just call that ZPE. Yes, is that right? Zippy. You have a few copies of it sitting on your coffee table at I, home. I do. A bowl of uh, breakfast cereal and just, you know, skim through it yeah. a little bit. Yeah, what's in Zippy today? That's right. So okay. this was published in 2011. This is taken from page 138, where he says... An excellent example of these interpretive problems with respect to inscriptions is provided by the so-called Titulus Tiburtinus. Okay. So the, the Tivoli placard. This is part of an inscription found in 1764 near Tivoli, the classical Tibur, containing a partially preserved cursus honorum. 
Now, again, for the audience, Jeff, the cursus honorum. That's kind of your the path of upper class Roman's career. Correct. Like, you know, we, the, the kind of the offices you start at the bottom, but you work way up, work your way up, um, with the goal becoming consul at the right, top. Yes. Right. So just like you and I, we start with a small podcast, mm-hmm. right? Then we're hosts on I don't know MSNBC. Yeah. Pretty soon we're White House correspondents. Exactly. Okay. All right. Right. Yeah. Right. That's our cursus honorum. Right. So it's uh, he says. Um, <laughs> A partially preserved cursus honorum held by an anonymous senator from the time of Augustus. Based on the preserved section of the inscription, we can state that this senator belonged to the highest echelons of the Roman political elite. This is shown by the functions he occupied and honors he was awarded after leading a victorious martial campaign. He was proconsul of Asia, as well as governor of Syria, starting to get the picture, mm-hmm. probably around the end of the first century BC. In the inscription, the title associated with the latter position, governor of Syria, mm-hmm. is preceded by the word iterum. Again, since the text is incomplete, it can be interpreted in various ways. Okay. So here's the problem. Does it refer to Quirinius or does it refer to another individual uh, Sentinus. I see. Because the the inscription does not, we don't get the name. That's right. It's okay. partly damaged. It's All right. partly damaged. The state in which the document is preserved, however, does not permit any certainty, says Dubrova, as to the correctness of the identification of this senator. Uh, and then in parentheses, a sizable group of scholars argues that this inscription refers to other governors of Syria or to the reconstruction of the course of his career. Okay. So it's, apparently it's not a silver bullet, right? Gotcha. If it really for sure referred to Quirinius, Mm -hmm. with the inclusion of the word iterum, Mm -hmm. it would establish that he was in Syria twice. Gotcha. Therefore, he could have been there earlier for the census that Luke talks about, uh, you know, prior to 4 BC. Mm -hmm. And he could also have been there uh, for the census of 6 or 7 that Luke mentions in Acts chapter 5. Okay. Now... Uh, given you know all the the problems with that evidence, wouldn't um, again the theory that um, that he was a governor of Syria earlier than the one that we the time that we know right. he was in six or seven eighty, wouldn't that also kind of align with with Luke's adjective prote? He was his, the first census. Well, you're anticipating all of this so well, Jeff. Okay. It's like you've read all of these articles and. <laughs> You've done all the homework. All right. So I'm, I'm on the right track here? Well, this is, okay. this is one of the solutions, okay. and that is that the proper way to interpret prote is to say that this is earlier than, prior to... Oh, I see. ...the one that Quirinius conducted, the more famous one that's mentioned in Acts chapter 5... Okay. ...and took place in 6 or 7 AD. And uh, I'm not completely persuaded that that's the best solution to this problem... But I'm getting there, okay. And, and I want to look at the evidence, you know, when we get right up to the end of the okay. episode. All right. Uh, but just this concluding quote from the Dubrova article, page 141: the chronological elements contained in the inscriptions from the standard do not offer a significant change in our knowledge of the status of Judea under the rule of Herod as a vassal state. Okay. So that's his conclusion. Okay. No silver bullet. Sorry, this doesn't solve the problem. Okay. All right. So he's just raising questions and, and just kind of leaving us hanging out there. Yeah, okay. it's, it's aporetic, no clear conclusion that All we right. would like. You never make it on to, you know, Unsolved Mysteries no. you know, on the History Channel, because those always wrap up more or less. Very nice, nice and neatly, yes. But before we get on, you know, to trying to solve the third problem, mm-hmm. which is the Quirinius issue, yeah. let's take a closer look at the first and second ones, okay. which are, uh, first of all, apart from the gospel, 
history knows nothing of a general imperial census in the time of Augustus. Okay. And the second one, there could have been no Roman census in Palestine during the time of Herod the Great, who was a Rex Socius, an allied king. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So let's turn to this article by Brooke Pearson. Okay. And this comes from uh, Catholic Biblical Quarterly back in uh, April of 1999, uh, an article titled, The Lucan Censuses Revisited. And he um, has this very striking statement here. He writes, uh, Sherwin White, another scholar, has stated that a provincial census in Judea in the time of the kingdom is an impossibility. This statement is true in the sense that there was certainly no provincial census under Herod's rule. But the supposition that there was a census in Herod's kingdom is necessary for much of the material in Josephus to make sense. Can I just interrupt you for a minute here? Yeah. Okay. So just to to tease this out a little bit, Mm -hmm. a provincial census is one undertaken by the Roman Empire, by Augustus or someone like that, in a particular province at his command and his entire direction. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. And so uh, Sherwin White says, impossible. No, it couldn't have happened. Couldn't have happened. You, yep. ne- you never do that in a province when there's a rakes Socius in charge. Right. And Pearson agrees. Okay. He says there was certainly no provincial census under Herod. But he says that uh, the supposition that there was a census in Herod's kingdom is necessary for much of the material in Josephus to make sense. Okay. Contrary to received opinion on the matter, Josephus records a great deal of indirect evidence that a careful and detailed system of census and taxation existed under Herod. Okay. So he's making he's making the argument that just by the the detail that Josephus gets gives us that there had to have been something like a census um, to have been taken in Palestine. Right, right. Right. So Herod was up to something, but not um, under the banner uh, or under the the terminology that were that we is usually associated with this question. Right. Okay. Very clear. Good. So then we're going to look at another article. This is by Lily Ross Taylor. This is the oldest in a list of articles that we surveyed for this episode. Okay. So this was published in uh, Tapa, right? American Journal of Philology, mm-hmm. uh, nineteen thirty three. Okay. And uh, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. So this is from an article entitled Quirinius and the Census of Judea, Lily Ross Taylor. And uh, this begins on page 131. Quote, Luke's statement that every man was commanded to go to his own city to be enrolled has significant parallels in Egyptian records. Among the papyri dealing with the census held in Egypt every 14 years during the empire are various documents providing for the enrollment by household. Hey, kata oikion apographe. So the apographe that means a census or an enrollment. Your, your name has to be written down, mm-hmm. and that's specifically mentioned in the Luke two verse one portion that we read. Yes. And according to Egyptian uh, records, it was a hey kata oikion apographe. That is a household by household census, which okay. is significant for this argument. So then. Uh, Taylor goes on, one of them dating from 104 AD is a command of the prefect of Egypt that those outside their own home return to their own households to be enrolled. Still other records, uh, still other records, the relation of which to the census seems now to be established, mention not the household, but the idea, the place of origin to which men could on an occasion like the taking of the census be forced to return. The idea of the idea was familiar elsewhere in the East. Whatever our decision about the historical accuracy of Luke, he seems to have been recording a custom familiar in Judea when he says that everyone was ordered to go to his own city, Eistain Edian Polin, to be enrolled. Interesting. So just to, so it's clear for the audience, um, 
when she's talking about Egyptian evidence, she's talking about Hellenized Roman Egypt. Yes. Okay. Yeah, not hieroglyphs, you know. Right, right, right. Not yeah. bird, bird, owl, owl, something like that. <laughs> right. I, I. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the the date there was something like early 2nd century? Yeah, 104 so, so not that far removed. 100 years. Yeah, from what we're talking about. Right. Okay. So all of this would be classed by a skeptic as, oh, come on, that's highly circumstantial mm-hmm. evidence. Yeah. And it is circumstantial right. evidence. But it proves that Luke is talking about things that are not completely fabricated. Right, he's not making this no. up out of whole if, if one wants to conclude that he's wrong on the details, well, okay. But he is he's not talking about things that are totally foreign to his audience. Yeah. There's very secure evidence that the kinds of things he's describing took place close by. Yes, good. So we bring in some other evidence here. Mm-hmm. And this is from uh, Smith? Yes. Okay. From the, uh, the article we recorded earlier. Correct. Right. He writes, It is commonly asserted that Quirinius' census was part of a worldwide census, and that this census requires citizens to go to their ancestral homes to register. The first assertion is demonstrably false, since Augustus could not commission a, a worldwide census and does not appear to have commissioned a, an empire-wide census. Here, the confusion is based upon a focused, in, forced interpretation of Luke's statement that Augustus issued a decree that the whole world be registered. Right. Okay. So, the next part there about the hyperbole, I think, is uh, really interesting also. Oh, yeah. If maybe you could read that. Yeah, let me carry on. Luke's statement that Luke's statement is a simple case of hyperbole akin to Matthew's statement that all Judea was going out to be baptized by John. Hmm. Hmm. No sensible ancient reader would be bothered or surprised by such a statement. Perhaps Luke meant to refer to the census of Judea as part of a larger census-taking strategy on the part of Augustus. There is no way of being sure, however... And it would not have mattered to Luke or to his audience. Anyone living at that time would know that emperors at various times commissioned censuses and might well do so in provinces other than their own. They would read nothing more into Luke's hyperbole. Rather, the description of the census in this way sets a tone of global proportions. The events surrounding the birth of Jesus were more, uh, were of more than merely local significance. Yeah, okay. I found that really persuasive yeah. and really interesting because, you know, growing up as a child... I, I think I read it first in the King James. A decree went out that the whole world be registered. Right. It seems very comprehensive. And, you know, I didn't have any reason to disbelieve it, nor do I now. But if you understand it properly, it's much more plausible to think that Augustus was in the process of keeping good accounts of everyone. Right. And it had now reached the, the place and the time where this could at least begun to be uh, begin to be done. In Judea. Right, right. Yeah, no, I find that very persuasive as well. Yeah. You know, the first time I heard about it, I thought, you know, like um, Joseph received um, an envelope in the mail, mm-hmm. right? That said, okay, <laughs> report to Bethlehem. Right. That's not really what happened. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, a much larger undertaking, uh, especially since so many of these people were illiterate and didn't have maybe fixed addresses and so forth. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting, Jeff, um, Smith's speculation here mm-hmm. about why maybe Joseph would have gone to Bethlehem. Yeah, for a, a tax rebate. Yes, a, <laughs> a, a potential tax loophole. Yeah. I think that's worth uh, sharing with the audience. What do you think? Yeah, this is great. So Smith writes, another possible reason why Joseph may have gone to Bethlehem grows out of studies of Hellenistic censuses in Egypt, which gave a tax reduction of as much as 50% to those who resided in metropolis. Because of the proximity of Bethlehem to Jerusalem, Joseph may have been eligible for the reduced rate which would never have been the case in Nazareth. And by registering his newborn child in the same place, he would make he would make the child eligible for the same exemption when he came of age. So not just a tax loophole for himself, but he's passing it on to his son. Right. All right. 
Yeah. So perhaps both of these reasons work together so that Joseph went to Bethlehem to maintain the legal status of his property as well as to take advantage of a tax loophole. Right. So that, that first part there, the, uh, the legal status of his property. So this is the notion that because he was descended from the line of David, right, therefore he had some small property perhaps in Bethlehem to which he had a legal claim, mm-hmm. even though or it could have been a large property. Um, there is a tradition that Joseph was not a carpenter, but a mason. Mm. Um, and so that therefore uh, he had property in Bethlehem and in Nazareth. And so he could choose which one to claim as the part that would be taxed. taxed. Gotcha. Because although he's not a Roman citizen, he's a subject of a province. And so he has to, you know, he has to pay taxes. Yeah. It's a common theme throughout the gospels, right? Is, is it right or wrong to pay taxes to Caesar? And there was a lot of disagreement mm-hmm. uh, so that Christ even had one disciple known as Simon the Zealot, you know, right. who refused to pay taxes, mm-hmm. apparently, mm-hmm. Uh, until Christ corrected him. Right. So the, the uh, Smith's arguing because Bethlehem was kind of considered uh, kind of Jerusalem Heights. Right. right? It, it was in the proximity of Jerusalem. <laughs> so that, that's there where was you, an exemption. you can get the, reba- the rebate. Yeah, by living in the big city. So that means speculative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, if we're going to speculate about Luke falsifying things, it's okay to, you know... Um, do a little bit of, of speculation, perhaps, in terms of how did the history, how did it play out yeah. specifically? Yeah. All right, Dave, is there any evidence you want to get to before we uh, get down to kind of the, the serious issue of the, the chronology and the translation um, a piece from Luke 2? Yes. Yeah. I'd like to look at a little quote here from a scholar named uh, Wayne Brindle. Okay. And uh, this was published in um, the Journal of, Ev- of the Evangelical Theological Society, JETS. 1984. Okay. This is from a reprint, page 51. He says, Some have questioned whether Rome would try to take a census in Palestine while Herod was still reigning. So this Mm -hmm. is the rakes Socius issue once again. Josephus indicates that serious problems developed during the latter part of Herod's reign between Herod and Augustus. His responses to his family troubles, that is Herod's, executing sons and changing his will, began to damage his reputation with Caesar. In addition, in 8 BC... Herod led an attack into Arabia to punish robbers who were Augustus's subjects, and Augustus reacted strongly. Then Brindle quotes from Josephus from the Antiquities, chapter 16. Caesar grew very angry and wrote to Herod sharply. The sum of his epistle was this, that whereas of old he had used him as his friend, you know, considered him as his friend, he should now use him as his subject. Hmm. So Augustus is upset with Herod. Uh, to continue Brindle, apparently in Herod's last days, his kingdom came more and more under the direction and influence of Augustus. It would not be surprising, therefore, to find the emperor asking Herod to take a census for him in Judea. So this undercuts, right? This, yes. is, this undercuts the notion you never have a client king uh, taking a Roman census. Right, right, right. Uh, Augustus was probably anticipating Herod's death, says Brindle. As far as the manner in which the census was carried out is concerned, uh, here Brindle's uh, quotes from um, another scholar, and he says, Herod was naturally eager to avoid giving to the enrollment an entirely foreign and non-national character. Obviously, the best way to soothe the Jewish sentiment, because the Jews did not like Herod, you know, he was not a, a native-born Jew, right. was to give the enrollment a tribal character and to number the tribes of Israel, as had been done by purely national governments. Oh. So here's another potential way to understand it, right? Gotcha, yeah. That Herod said, well, you know, let's talk about it in, in terms of the 12 tribes, and therefore I'll get what I want. Yeah. 
um, but they won't be quite as uh, opposed to me because it it represents something about their heritage. Right, 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 right. Okay, all right. Yeah. Oh, so again, hugely circumstantial. Yes. Right. Very circumstantial, but intriguing nonetheless. Correct. Right. So, um, what about this? The the translation. Yes. In, in Luke two, let's let's get down to this. Right. So we're going to look at. Um, the question of did Quirinius serve two terms, mm-hmm. right? Does this somehow reconcile the chronology? On the whole, the evidence says no. He did not serve two terms. Maybe the inscription from the, Tivoli. The iterum? Right, the okay. iterum again. Yeah. Maybe the inscription supports it, but it's just not conclusive. Yeah. Was it someone else? There's, a, there's something we haven't mentioned throughout the whole episode, and that is the church father Tertullian uh, who is generally very well informed about uh, Roman practices, he says that it did not take place under a man named Quirinius, uh, but the man Gaius Sentius Saturninus. And uh, he mentions this in 207, so only 200 years after the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is there's no indication that um, the text of Luke is corrupt there. You know that the New Testament is, you know, by and large, very well secured as to what the text really says. Right. Uh, there's only one manuscript of Catullus, for example. Yes. There's, there's more than 10,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Right. So we have a very good idea of what the New Testament says, even in troubling passages, and there's there's nothing there to substitute. Okay, yeah. So we have to dismiss Tertullian's um, suggestion out of hand because it just doesn't fit the evidence. Okay, okay. So now we come right down to it. To the Greek itself. To the Greek itself. Okay. Have there been mistranslations? So we're going to look at two articles. Uh, First of all, Thorley, and then we're going to go back to Pearson to wrap it all up. All right. All right. What does the Thorley article have to say about this? Yeah. So this is from the journal Greece and Rome and uh, published in 1979. The article is entitled The Nativity Census. What does Luke actually say by John Thorley? So I'm going to start at page uh, 82. Uh, for the phrase, how te apographe prote, there's that prote, agenita, he gemonoantos, te surias cure uh, the New English Bible offers this, quote, this was the first registration of its kind. It took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why of its kind, asks Thorley. Luke does not say this, and whatever the census was, it was certainly not the first of its kind in any absolute sense. It may have been the first census in Judea, But if this is what Luke was saying, he would surely have been aware of an ambiguity in stating that it took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, since Quirinius was also governor of Syria in AD 6, when he was responsible for taking a census in Judea on its annexation as a Roman province. Luke himself refers to this event in Acts 5.37, that's the revolt under uh, Judas the Galilean. Yes. And Luke can hardly have been unaware of Quirinius's involvement, says Thorley, nor indeed can he have believed that the nativity took place on the occasion of the census in AD 6, right? Mm-hmm. Most translations in English and in other languages do indeed suggest that Luke is at very least guilty of historical vagueness. In English, only two versions incorporate into their texts another interpretation, which allows that Luke was being far more specific. The revised version of 1881 says, quote, this was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the NIV says, 1973, the one you read from, um, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. To put it more fully, what Luke is actually saying is that this was the first census to take place while Quirinius happened to be governor of Syria, thus distinguishing it from the second census made 
when Quirinius was similarly mm. governor of Syria in 86. Yes. Luke's Greek surely allows no other sensible and unambiguous interpretation. Hmm. Okay. Finally, it might be objected that if Luke had meant the first of two censuses, he would have written protera, which is the comparative. Yes. But in Acts 1.1, Luke uses proton in exactly this way. In my first book, proton. And indeed, proteros was never obligatory in this sense. It must be said that several commentators have acknowledged this interpretation as a possible meaning of the Greek text and the translators of the New English Bible inserted it as a footnote. Hmm. Okay. So, so that that would be uh, an argument that would line up with um, seeing the, the Tivoli inscription as being okay, that uh, he was governor twice. That's correct. And the, this is the census that took place during the first. And there were two of them. There were two of them. I think an even better interpretation is given by Pearson mm-hmm. of the Greek text. And you're going to read that portion for us, I believe, right? Yes. So Pearson writes this, perhaps the most serious reason why there is continuing skepticism regarding the Lucan census, despite the evidence marshaled above, is that the grammar of Luke 2.2 is thought to be at odds with the evidence. Luke 2 verse 2 um, is usually translated as something like, this was the first census while Quirinius was governing Syria. But several grammatical points need to be examined before any understanding can be accepted. One, the use and meaning of the superlative adjective protos. Two, the relationship of prote to the other elements in the sentence. Three, the sense of the genitive absolute. And four, the sense of agenito and its relationship to the other elements in the sentence. Ramsey argues for the true superlative sense of protos, saying that in Luke 2.2, prote was not used in its frequently occurring Hellenistic comparative sense. Ramsey bases this on his argument that this census was simply the first of many However, this requires the reference to Quirinius in this verse to be a reference to his first legateship of the two, the second being of that of 6-7 CE AD. Nigel Turner, arguing that the census should be, the census, this census was prior to the census of Quirinius on the basis of the attested ellipses in other comparative uses, as in John 5-3-6 in 1 Corinthians 1-25, also suggests that in Luke 2-2, the superlative prote, is used in its Hellenistic comparative sense. So, just to interrupt for a moment, yes. to keep the audience up to speed here, uh, this suggestion is that prote should mean here earlier. So, this was earlier than the census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Yes. So, the famous one is in AD 6, which occasioned the revolt. Luke, in chapter 2, is not talking about that one. He's saying, this one that I'm mentioning may not have been conducted by... Uh, Quirinius. Right. But it was before the famous one conducted by Quirinius. Yes. Yes, exactly. So if you want to continue, uh, was it Heichelheim? Yes. So he says, Heichelheim's solution concurs largely with Turner's, but more for several of the historical reasons which have been outlined above than for grammatical ones. Sherwin White, in in response, states that Heichelheim's and others suggestion that prote in Luke 3 verse 2 means comparative proteron could only be accepted if supported by a parallel in Luke himself. This is not a viable argument, however. We must examine not only Luke, uh, but also the Hellenistic Greek in which he wrote. The comparative sense of the superlative adjective in Hellenistic usage is well attested, and we do not even have to go outside the New Testament itself to find it. With bodies of writing as small as those of the New Testament books, it is much more difficult than many think to establish the style or regular usage of any particular writer. Yeah, that is an excellent point. Yeah. This is a a typical, um, I think, mistake that is made in these kinds of things. You have a very small sample, right? You have two scrolls, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. 
on the assumption, which I take to be true, they're written by the same author. Mm -hmm. That's all you have. Right. You can't draw large scale conclusions about what the author would or would not have done in any given instance. Mm -hmm based on such a small sample. Exactly, right. But like you were saying, the, the, his use of of, uh, of prote or protos in referring in reference to his book, um, that would line up with the same kind of usage of this use of prote in this passage. You mean in Acts 1? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In my former book, Theophilus. Yes. Right. So that's, that's a pretty good argument, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, shall we wrap up with um, Pearson's conclusion? Yes, let's do it. Because I think this is uh, I think this is a good place to end. And then we can wait for the questions, the comments, the criticisms to roll in along the lines of, gentlemen, you didn't solve anything. Right. You didn't <laughs> shed any light. You just, you know, stretched out the darkness. So this is from page, uh, what is it? 282. 282 of Pearson's article, right. uh, where it says, translated out of its context, this verse makes very little sense and creates a plethora of problems. However, in the face of the evidence, one, that Herod must have kept accurate records of census and taxation. Any problems with that claim? What do you think? I, I, don't, I don't see any problems with that claim. Yeah, I don't think it's the case that he must have kept accurate records of census and taxation, but he certainly was highly motivated to do so. Right. In order to keep on Augustus's good side and to make as much money as possible, mm-hmm. right? Point two, he most likely used the census in ways very similar to those of his Roman overlords both to collect taxes and to exercise strict social control over an unruly people. Seems likely. Correct. Three, many indirect statements in Josephus square with what we know of the census process in other Roman territories. Four, that one of the offices of the census process is mentioned by Josephus in such a way as to assume that the process was a part of everyday life. So that's the interesting uh, part, Jeff, about how you get the impression when you read it, at least I did as a child, that this was, you know, the first thing that ever kind of happened, and it was, yeah, it was so unusual. But no, it was right. just a common practice. Right. Yeah. I, I, when I was a kid too, I, I took that. That's why Luke mentions it because it was so rare. Correct. Right. But, but that's it's really the opposite. Opposite. Yes. Right. And five, that each and every aspect of the census, as it is described by Luke, has close parallels in other parts of the Roman Empire. So that's the Hellenistic Egyptian evidence that yep. we talked about a mm-hmm. household census. The conclusion is, says Pearson, we would do better to take a plausible grammatical solution which accords with the evidence rather than to ignore the evidence on the basis of shaky grammar. Hmm. The meaning suggested for this verse, quote, this registration was earlier than or before Quirinius governed in Syria works in terms of context rather than in terms of a predetermined prejudice to find contradictions in the narrative. I find that very persuasive. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. All things, you know, being equal, uh, given that, yes, some of this evidence is circumstantial, mm-hmm. we'd really like that inscription to contain an iterum, and again, that refers directly to Quirinius, so that he was there both times. Yes. But even without that, I find this uh, interpretation of the Greek text very plausible. Yeah. I'm, and part of me just loves that uh, this kind of stuff can come down to just one you know, five character word. Yeah, prote. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So going through this episode reminded me of um, an episode we did very, very early, number five or six, I think, uh, History and the Trojan War, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, was surprisingly popular because I thought nobody's going to like that. It's so dry, right? Mm. But, you know, it had some success. And uh, so 
preparing for this one seemed kind of similar. You know, yeah. You're kind of doing some historical sleuthing or, or trying to. Yeah, I love this stuff. I hope the audience does too. I think this yep. is so interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, Jeff, we got to get out of here, don't we? We do. But before we do, Dave, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the Moss Method? I'd love to do that. Okay. So the Moss Method for Greek, if you want to be able to read, oh, I don't know, the New Testament, uh, Josephus Antiquities, some Herodotus, Thucydides, the things we've talked about on the podcast, you can go to mossmethod.com and you can check out my program, which will take you from... Neophyte to erudite. That's correct. And uh, it teaches you the basis, uh, the basics of Greek from the ground up. I'm having a 24-hour flash sale. What? what? When did this happen? Just now? No, I thought about it earlier today, but okay. I'm announcing it just now. A 24-hour flash sale on New Year's Eve. It's going to go from 12.01 a.m. Okay. on uh, December 31, 2022, and it's going to end at 11.59 p.m. on that same day. Okay. This is the only time I've done this. You can get 15% off. I've never offered this large of a discount. Fantastic. Go into the new year learning some Greek. Go to mossmethod.com for the one-day flash sale. Excellent. Now, what about uh, LLPSI? Thanks for asking, Jeff. I'm doing the same thing. Okay. For the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Uh, That is Hans Orberg's fabulous text for learning Latin. I've put together a program that contains 33 instructional videos with a live studio audience where I'm teaching uh, other Latin students of various degrees of competence from the ground up ab initio and uh, covers the first nine chapters of the famous Hans Orberg book. So if you, especially if you are a Latin teacher and you're teaching the active method, you want to learn how to speak some Latin. This will do it for you. Qui casus est? What's the case? Quid genus? What's the gender? Uh, very useful in the classroom. Go to latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI and get that special 24-hour flash sale. Fantastic. All right. And also, before we go, we got to thank uh, a number of people. Of uh, course. Uh, Mishka, as yes. always, number one. Our great engineer who puts us all together in record time. In every record time. time every time. We make such demands on her and she says, ah, no problem, I'll do it. That's right. Yeah. And also to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music you hear throughout and for this episode to Jeff Sheets. Yes. Yeah. So Ken provides us that great bumper music for the ads and then Mr. Jeff Sheets, that guitar at the beginning with Angels We Have Heard on High. And uh, what are we doing for the outro music? What, what are we doing? I don't know. Which, uh, I think it's Oh Holy Night. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Jeff, what if they want to get in touch with us? Well, then they should write to us. They should write to you at Dave at DaveAdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V and AdNauseum. Yes. Uh, we still continue to get the greatest kinds of letters from our fans, always filled with lots of interesting, excellent questions. Yeah. It takes us time to think about them. It does. Yeah. So <laughs> right. s- send us ideas for episode. Yeah. You want to shout out, just give us, we'd love to get to know you. That's right. Pick up a t-shirt, a Kwai No Kent Do Kent. What Do doesn't too. hurt you makes you stronger uh, at our website where you can uh, lurch with merch. Yeah. Jeff, what's uh, what's on tap for episode 108? Are we uh, are we diving back into the, into the Aeneid, I believe? We're gonna, we're gonna yeah, get, that seems right. Yeah, back into book, uh, are we going to book eight? Book eight. Fantastic. That's right. Yes. De Libro Octavo. Yeah. And uh, you've got the gustatory parting shot tonight, is that right? I do. This comes from one Anthelm Brilat Savarin. Oh, nice. Some and French. Yes, he writes, uh, the destiny of nations depends upon the manner in which they feed themselves. Hmm. So what do you think is in store for America? I don't, not good. With hamburgers and hot dogs <laughs> exactly, and right. spam. And Diet as destiny, it's, it's not promising. It's not looking good. <laughs> right. Thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs>